For better or for worse, mental health is sometimes considered by many in today's media to be a hot trending topic. Now, I think this is generally a good thing. Awareness allows us to shed light on conditions, like bipolar disorder, PTSD, or depression, that can very often lead to dark and destabilizing periods in the lives of people who are struggling with these diagnoses. Stigmas are eased, or in some cases erased completely, and people who are truly suffering through the worst periods of their lives can find support from their loved ones and the broader society. Research into treatments and cures advances. In the end, people are helped. On the flip side, increased public attention has caused some to accuse people of capitalizing on the quote-unquote trendiness of certain medical conditions. Apps like TikTok allow users to make videos showcasing less common symptoms of disorders like ADHD, and people, sometimes incorrectly, self-diagnose. It starts a chain reaction which ends with people misusing common and helpful psychiatric terms like trigger or triggering in order to make fun of those who may actually be struggling with something dark and unhealthy. Overall, though, awareness breeds positivity, and it is incumbent upon us to ensure that we always strive to do right by these sensitive topics, to weed out those operating in bad faith and confront the stigmas, dismantle them, and lift those who are struggling. In that vein, we wanted to look at how Shakespeare addresses topics related to mental health. His works are universally read and understood, and in some cases misunderstood, so it seems prudent to examine how one of the most celebrated writers of the English language talks about this topic. How did the Elizabethans view these characters? How did Shakespeare treat them? And how is this all relevant to us today? Now, we are not psychologists or mental health professionals of any sort, and there is a danger in trying to diagnose someone with something when you don't even know them, even if they are fictional characters. But over the years, several prominent Shakespearean characters have risen to the fore as candidates for various psychiatric disorders. So today, we will be looking at four of them. Lady Macbeth from Macbeth, Jaquies from As You Like It, and Ophelia and Hamlet from Hamlet, to try and suss out the answers to those three questions as best we can. How would these characters and their mental illnesses have been viewed and diagnosed if they were living people during Shakespeare's time? How are they presented to us in the play? And what can we learn from them as we grapple with these same psychiatric disorders today? Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. And beat me, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Eden. And I'm Lindsay. And as Lindsay eloquently put in our opening essay, uh, we're talking about mental health today and the way it's shown and discussed and talked about in uh, four of our favorite characters and four characters that we think kind of typify Shakespeare's uh, understanding and approach and uh, overall... Yeah, approach is probably the best word, to mental health. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in going through the plays, we're about mm, halfway through the the collected works. We we, we aren't scratching the surface, I'm sure, in terms of um, characters that could potentially be um, considered suffering from uh, a mental illness of some sort. But these four characters that we're choosing to talk about today are... um, 
kind of the the high flyers, if you say, mm-hmm. if you will. They're the the ones that that, like I said in the essay, typically rise to the top when when people do talk about mental illness in Shakespeare. So um, it seems prudent to kind of start there, and and they they also tend to be. Um, these later plays where Shakespeare's maturity has really um, he's come into his own as a writer and and he's exploring some of these topics with uh, confidence and a depth that his earlier plays lacked yeah but we are going as far as like we could have talked about Laontes in the Winter's Tale and the yes. the grief and depression that he sinks into uh, upon the death of his wife, or um, you know there there are other characters that that you could talk about um, much yeah. later on. But these ones seem to be the most interesting. Yeah, again, there are the most famous ones too. Exactly. When, yes. you, when you think about mental health in Shakespeare, Hamlet, Hamlet. obviously comes <laughs> Ophelia, to mind. Ophelia, Lady yeah. Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. Jaquez less so. I think, yeah, I think Jaquez. But a, he was an interesting kind of case study for us when we were reading the yeah. play. Surprising. Uh, yeah. 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 And it, I think because he's not as well known of a character, it, it surprised us a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, these are the ones that that again come to mind. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about them. We're gonna and I think the the best way to get started is to talk about how the Elizabethans generally, just to provide that context of how Shakespeare is writing these characters, how they viewed mental health and mental illness. And I think uh, we're going to talk about the humors and Galen because, of course, that's part oh, of it. Of course. But I think it's safe to say that at a high level, um, there wasn't really much of an understanding of like psychology. Obviously, as, no. as we have it today, there's uh, psychotherapy didn't come around until the 20th century. Like yes. it's it's a very recent idea that um, you the know mental. Brain was... the, yeah, the brain is the center of everything, and that you can do a lot with it just by talking and uh controlling thoughts and and undergoing techniques like uh cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy things like these these are all very recent additions so shakespeare didn't have access to any of this generally mental health was kind of an offshoot of physical health exactly uh was was kind of the the prevailing assumption and so the idea around physical health was these the balance of the four humors yes Lindsay, do you want to give us a rundown quickly of absolutely the four humors humors. it's it's really funny to look at this because you can kind of see how um galen operating how many years ago it was in two i think he died in 280 or something yeah so so let's say 2000 years ago you've got a guy who's like well you know if people are sick it's because there are these these elemental forces within their body that are out of whack um and those four humors are are referenced they're they're kind of the prevailing theory that underpins medicine right up until you know the the renaissance late renaissance into the industrial revolution was when medicine really came into its own and you start having things like well antibiotics don't come about until the when the 19th century 20th century 20th century yeah Yeah. so um so there wasn't really a a deep understanding they didn't even understand germ theory until very recently recently, in terms of of, uh, uh medicine so um but the four humors were uh as follows phlegmatic sanguine uh, choleric and melancholic and they each referred to four different fluids that existed in the body so the sanguine um humor was an excess of blood it, it referred to the blood and actually being a sanguine person was considered the ideal type of person they yeah. were easygoing they were enthusiastic they were social um, if you were a sanguine person you were kind of the ideal person to be around a choleric person um, had an excess of what's called yellow bile in their yeah. body and were very excessive, uh, sorry, very aggressive yes. and excessive too. Yeah, they were yeah, extra. Yeah. yeah, they were a little extra. <laughs> um, 
and uh, and so they they tended to have a, a bit more of a fiery personality, and, and that was not considered to be uh, a positive thing. I think yes. um, phlegmatic people were um, afflicted with apathetic behavior as a result of too much phlegm in their bodies. Now, it's just worth mentioning the phlegm that we're talking about here is not the same as the phlegm that yes. we is, is it's commonly spelled understood the same. Now. It's not so, what you're coughing up out of your throat. No, it, but it, it was just, again, another kind of like semi-invisible. I don't, I don't, this is when we did our quick little research on the background for this. Most of our focus was on uh, the medieval and Elizabethan understanding of these yes. things. But like the initial like diagnosis of where these elements came from is kind of hazy. And it's it goes back to Hippocrates. Hippocrates. And Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Thank you. Yeah. My Greek's terrible. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then Galen kind of built on it right. and stuff. And it, it was always just kind of assumed like these are they were connected to the four elements of earth, air, water yes. and fire and yes. stuff. So like it's not like uh, beyond blood, which everyone could see. Yeah. Uh, it was not really a hundred percent sure uh, where these uh, liquids were produced, uh, what they looked like, how, you know, how you could actually, you could never like withdraw a, an amount of blood and like measure out the, the different elements. How much sanguine yes. and how much flight. Yeah. And, and I mean, we've mentioned bile as well. Like, I don't think they're talking about the bile that we are. Yeah, understand that's, now. That's yeah. produced by your pancreas is your is bile produced in the pancreas i don't remember where bio bio was not my strong no, I, suit, know. I know it was mine but that was a long, <laughs> time, was a long ago. time ago um and and so yeah it's it we're not talking about the the fluids that we are associating with it today yeah. these are different fluids that had different meanings yeah and which obviously now we know don't exist yes. so well, most, yes, of was, exactly. most of it was imaginary so yeah it's not like they could measure these things and say oh yeah you're a little low on your your black bile today make sure you eat a radish or whatever but they remedy. tried they did and that's, try. i'm gonna get to yes. that in a minute so the last the last <laughs> yeah, sorry, of the four um the four humors was melancholic and this mm-hmm. was an excess of black bile yeah. um so uh, sanguine personalities were associated with air, as Aiden mentioned, choleric with fire, phlegmatic with water, and melancholic with earth. Yeah. Double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. So one of the things that that really interested me when we were starting our research for this was trying to figure out what it was about Shakespeare that made him interested in writing the characters that he did with the mental illnesses that he did. And there are a couple of prevailing theories about this. One of them is that um, his friend, Edward Allen, from the the King's Men the or the uh, Lord Chamberlain's Men, his father ran the uh, mental hospital known as Bedlam in London, which was a kind of a, a forward-thinking institution, which yeah. is surprising. At when you time, think about yeah. Bedlam today, we think about, well... Bedlam yeah. is a is a, a word. It's like Machiavellian, right? It's a it's a term from history that's come to represent something completely removed from its initial um, initial meaning. But uh, this was a, a mental hospital, an insane asylum, if you will, where people who were thought to have acute bits, acute bouts of um, of mental illness could go for treatment and be cured. It wasn't the kind of place where someone who was born with a developmental disability could go. They, they didn't want those people because they couldn't be cured. Those people were a separate segment of society who would be allowed to beg on the street, for example. They were almost like legal vagrants, right? Bedlam wasn't interested in that. Be- Bedlam wanted the types of people who could be cured. And, and the... The hospital used some interesting techniques. Prior to that, people who had mental illness like this would typically be 
manacled and left in a room to deal with their own problems, yeah. right? It wasn't a very holistic or sensitive treatment no, of mental illness well, at all. Well, it didn't help at all, I'm sure. Not yeah. at all, right? But at least in at Bedlam, they were trying to understand how they could help people through these mental illnesses. And and it's possible that Shakespeare saw the, the conversations and, and the things that were going on with Bedlam with his friend Edward and maybe incorporated some of this stuff into his plays. The other example, that, or the other... Uh, Avenue that's kind of frequently cited is, yeah. is uh, John Hall. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, Liz, go ahead. No, that's okay. No, uh, I completely lost my train of thought. So um, his daughter, Susanna, married John Hall, who was a Stratford-upon-Avon doctor. And uh, and he, he was a celebrated doctor. He was a very successful doctor. And he had... Um, his case book mm-hmm. has actually been published. Yeah. So the book that he would carry around with him, I guess, or write down all of the cases that he saw in the in the community um, has been published. It was published initially in Latin and then it was Englished by a man named James Cook. Mm. Uh, we'll throw a link up in the description so that you can uh, read it yourself. But he describes in this case book how he treated all of these various illnesses that the people of the, the surrounding community um, were afflicted with. Mm. And several times in the book, there are references to, to two different relevant to our interests um, disorders, mental disorders. Uh, melancholy or hypochondriac melancholy and delirium and the way that John Hall treated these things was very much in the same way as the way he might treat a physical ailment he would approach the people who had hypochondriac melancholy and he would say we're going to mix these berries and these uh, roots and this bark and um, boil it together and then you're going to drink it and we'll apply a poultice to your liver and radishes soaked in salt and vinegar to your feet and you're going to poop a lot and you're going to pass a lot of wind and that's going to fix your melancholy. Because it's going to get rid of your excess black bile. Well, yeah. And and, that was the thinking. That's the thinking. So maybe black bile was poop. (laughs) Is that what we're saying? It's not really sure. fluid at that point, but well, it could. could be, I don't yeah. know. This is gross. <laughs> Got gross pretty um, quick. But yeah, yeah, that was the that was the approach, right? Is that it's going to be just like the physical ailments. We're going to do these things, and again, you know, it could have just been a placebo effect. It's like, oh, the doctor told me this is going to help me with my depression. Sure. Maybe that just worked. And it, it, and it could also supported. have been uh, that these people were severely constipated and that <laughs> contributed to their melancholy. Exactly, right? Uh, just because in, in reading through all of the um, the casebook, the notes that he made about these melancholics, almost every time he prepared these preparations for them, he included senna in it and was really happy when they produced stool. So I just have to wonder if maybe it was, you know, constipation breeding... Uh, some kind of melancholy or yep. something, right? Which I I can understand that. Um, so just for fun, for funsies, Aiden, would you like me to read one of his casebook entries for hypochondriac uh, melancholia? <laughs> sure, that sounds great. Okay, cool. Let's, let's cure Hamlet while we're at it here. Yeah, so um, <laughs> on page 30 of his casebook, he speaks about a Captain Bassett, age 50, afflicted with hypochondriac melancholy, with trembling and pricking of the heart, as also with pain in the head and tumor about the ankles. He was cured as followeth. Uh, He was given a prescription of leaves of succory, borage, bugloss, violets, strawberries, the root of black elbor, I don't know what that is, licorice, polypotty, which sounds fake, but okay, (laughs) Um, seeds of anise and caraway, myrobalans, which sounds like midichlorians, so I'm going to assume it's something... Weird. The force is with them, yeah. Absolutely. You're supposed to beat them all grossly, rub them with your hands with oil of sweet almonds, infuse them for 24 hours, 
infumatory water, which I'm not sure what that is. Uh, then you take roots of parsley, bug loss, flowers of boreg, bug loss, violets, roses, boil them all in five pi- five pints of water until two pints be wasted. Then strain it, add senna, epithymum, tamarisk, uh, boil them again, reduce it to two pints. In the straining, infuse for a night with agaric, rhubarb, uh, mechoacan, ginger, spikenard, cinnamon, this starting to sound actually quite delicious strain it again boil it with sugar to the consistency of syrup then add the syrup of roses um reserve it for four four doses this purged well with happy event he says at the end of purging he took for a whole week one of the following morsels morning and evening two hours before meat and then he gives a list of all the things he put in there um he also created a, a a poultice to put on his stomach it was to be spread on leather. I used a clyster framed of emollients and carminatives with sugar. After meat, he used the following coriander seed, fennel seed, anise seed, caraway, licorice, ginger, gallingal, nutmeg, cinnamon cloves to make a gross powder. They could be made into tablets as well with sugar dissolved in rose water. Thus, he was well cured and thanked me. Yeah. So that's that was his cure for melancholia, um, hypochondriac melancholia, which was a, a, a specific kind of, of melancholy. Yeah. But certainly the kind of thing that I, I mean, just by by listening to the way that he was, it's a recipe, really. Yeah. Which I guess that's what pharmacy. Yeah, no, exactly. Is. Yeah, yeah. But they were using what they knew in the in what the they had region. Them. Yeah. To make a, a preparation that would cure take the physical ailments out of the body that would cure the, the head yeah and i think that is that's generally the approach that um that people took to that there's also a preparation for delirium which interestingly was administered to a woman i won't read through the whole thing but we're going to get into a conversation maybe about the gendered quality of shakespeare's mental illnesses um but yes, this woman had given birth to a baby and fell into a delirium where she was not interested in anything, uh, began to talk religiously about things. And so he gave her a whole bunch of these, again, the ingredients medicinal yep. herbal med- yep. medicines. And and uh, in seven days, she was happily cured. So yeah, um, according to his own textbook. According to his own textbook, yes, right. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> went through quite a few of these and nobody died, which seems yeah, fishy, yeah. but... Um, either way, uh, it does seem really interesting to me that, um, and not not at all surprising, that they would just use what they had around them to try and cure the ailments of the head. And as you were listing that very long list of ingredients, yeah. I, I, I couldn't help but realize that maybe, you know, within one or two of those things, there was actually some sort of medicinal sure. properties that they just stumbled upon and they combine them with 48 other ones that had no like chamomile for for sleep has been something people have used for years senna for constipation people have known these things existed for years and years and yeah. years so they so, just kind of threw the kitchen sink at these issues and just hoped that something would come along and, and if it did that's great then it worked yeah, yeah exactly so i guess the question becomes uh well why did we focus on melancholia and delirium to kind of uh, hone in on Shakespeare's characters. Uh, well, because those are the the symptoms uh, most closely affected with the four that we're taking a look at, yeah. Uh, especially, so um, let's let's get into that. Let's let's talk about those those characters. So for each character, we're going to kind of uh, go through again. Yeah, how how the Elizabethans would have diagnosed them. How mm-hmm. John Hall, if he was on site, would have would have uh, approached. What would he have administered to Hamlet yeah. or Jaques? Exactly. <laughs> uh, then we also want to talk about how the play itself kind of talks about 
these mental health issues because they're not um I'd say it's a far more nuanced than John Hall's approach would have been. Right. It's, it's not necessarily just poultices and uh, herbs that are that are going to either address or um, cure. Yeah, or even just like understand what the the problem is. Right. Um, I think Shakespeare is a little more modern than that. Well, he's not that, a physician trying to cure it anyway. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's, he's Doing a, a dramatic representation yes, of what exactly. Is, so. so he's going to have something within the play be the cause and, yeah. and what have you, right? So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then we're going to talk about how, you know, modern audiences might understand what was going on. And maybe even modern psychology, how how a character like Hamlet might present if he were to stumble into a psychiatrist's office or Ophelia or Lady Macbeth. What might their diagnosis be and how might those um, those ailments be treated today? Yeah. If music be the food of love, play on. So let's start with Jaques. How might the Elizabethans have viewed this this quite dour, yeah. sad? Uh, he's oh, thinks all the time. Yeah, doesn't you know, do anything. Doesn't do yeah. much. Just sits and pontificates. Yeah, about that things. poor deer that they killed that right. he eats the meat from, anyways. Yes, exactly. You know. So I think obviously uh, it would have been either melancholic or possibly phlegmatic. You know, the the kind okay. of apathy that, yeah. that was exhibited by someone with uh, too much phlegm would have been. Uh, a possible diagnosis as well um and i think that's that's kind of backed up throughout the play is that i think he's even called melancholic once or twice i think so i can't remember now um but that was definitely the prevailing diagnosis of this character who just yeah as you mentioned he stands around all day he pontificates about the force the 12 stages of life or whatever it is you know like he's he's very much uh uh a foolish character in the sense that uh his melancholia seems kind of um, innate in, in, to a certain extent, a little bit more than maybe some of the other characters. We, yeah. we, we're never exposed to like the happy Jaques, whereas we kind yes. of get hints of Lady Macbeth before she goes down the delirium right. and rat Ophelia hole. a little bit. Yeah, Hamlet, you you know that he's changed. Yes, People talk you, about him you've been talked changed. about that. Yes, but Jaques, yeah, you're right. He's he's kind of a static character in that sense that he enters the play melancholic or phlegmatic, and he ends the play melancholic or phlegmatic, and yeah. we don't really have a start point. There's no end point in sight either. So we don't know what precipitated this. We don't know what caused it. It's just something that's innate to him, which does make him quite unique in terms of the four characters we're going to talk about mm-hmm. today, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and I mean, I think it's also interesting. We'll maybe touch on this when we talk about how the play treats them. But that difference between him and the other characters might be... Uh, um, might be caused by the the dramatic the needs of the play. What the yes, play yes. needs these fool characters to do. Yeah, exactly. Let, well, let's go into that because I sure. think I think like the Elizabethan diagnosis is pretty simple, at least for us. I mean, yeah. yes, John Holm would have had a lot more to say. I'm sure he would. Oh yes, he would have written quite a few quite, pages yes. about the, all the different herbs that he yes. would apply to his feet. Yes, or exactly. Testicles. Yeah. <laughs> As or the whatever. case may be, yes. <laughs> but I think, yeah, within the play, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, um, Jaquis serves a kind of important role. It's, his yeah. character isn't just, um, a morose kind of, uh, apathetic, philosopher, uh, philosopher yeah. from the woods, although he is all those things. Yes. He's also the anti, is it Touchstone was the fool? I thought that was his name. Yes, it was Touchstone, who was the court jester, Frederick's, Duke Frederick's jester. Yes, yes, who follows them out into the forest. Um, so 
you know, he's this counterpoint. And we talked about it in our episode about As You Like It, about how Jaquees really wants to be the fool. You yes. know, he he wants to be able to provide that levity and that insight at the same time, whereas he's just kind of stuck in this melancholic rut of just being there to commentate and tell everybody that they're doing poorly in life and he's he's a philosopher who can't who wants to be more than just the thinker he wants to be the guy that i I think he wants to be the life of the party and he just he's just not he's just not capable of doing that or being that yeah and that's that's kind of interesting for the for uh compared to a lot of other Shakespearean characters that express this kind of melancholic tone is that he's, he wants to be more, he's kind of aware of his own limitations as uh, someone who's kind of afflicted with this moment. Right. It's, and it's almost as if the, the plot of the play requires him to be melancholic. So he is melancholic. Yeah. The plot of Hamlet does not require Hamlet to be melancholic if he is melancholic. Um, But he is because the events that happen around him um, push him forward, right? So there's a different need for Jayquees's. That sounds so weird, Jayquees's. <laughs> for, for, the for English language, it's lovely, yeah. The need for him to be a melancholic character is necessitated by the yeah, constraints the of the play, of the, play. the structure of the play, and yeah. what Shakespeare is doing with the, uh, comparing. He's like a foil to Touchstone almost, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're comparable characters that you're meant to hold in contrast. Yeah. It's also a comedy, so it's the yeah. only comedy we're yes. talking about. So I don't think we're uh, Shakespeare wasn't intended, intending us to look at this and be like, oh, poor Jayquees. Like, yeah. I wish we could. Like, you're not supposed to sympathize with him too much. He's yeah. still kind of a ridiculous character. Yes. So it's... it's uh, it's a little bit different from the other characters on on the list, but still worthwhile. I think it's good to talk about yeah, and what it, makes him interesting. Exactly, and I think I think uh, because it was a comedy and because he was kind of this stock character, I mm-hmm. think Shakespeare can lean on the idea of sure. what the audience would have understood as of a melancholic character. It's not he did he himself as the playwright doesn't want to explore Jaques's no. melancholia. He's leaning no, he's on his crutch. Yeah, almost. exactly. Yeah. yeah, he's like, oh, there's the guy with too much yellow bile. Let's make fun of them now right. and use them for, you know, make cracking jokes, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. It's it's a it's a means to an end for for Shakespeare. It is interesting though that he chose to have this phlegmatic slash melancholic character describe him. I believe he describes himself, or other people describe him as a philosopher yeah. and and a thinker. Yeah. Um. So there there might be some some truth underlying the fiction here. Yeah. Um. It's something that a lot of people tend to associate with deep thinkers is that they they tend to get lost in their own heads and become uh, melancholic and depressed yeah. when they're uh, when they're in their thoughts all day. Yeah. So uh, I, there might be a comment Shakespeare is making there about the nature of people who spend too much time in their in their in their own heads. Yeah. Maybe. Which is funny because Shakespeare as a writer probably would have spent quite a bit of time. Well, and that's that's one of those things then that people like to say that great artists are tortured, yeah. which is something we fight back against all the time yeah. now, especially today. But um, there's not a lot of evidence that Shakespeare was any of those yeah. things. There's no yeah. evidence of anything with Shakespeare. But but it is it is funny that we tend to associate that with him, especially after reading the sonnets. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, how how we kind of would approach this character. And sure. I think this is an interesting one, Lynn, because yeah. it's um, – I don't think there's anything wrong with Jaquees. I think he's just kind of a naturally morose yeah, kind of character. Yeah, he doesn't seem upset about the way he, exactly. he goes and, through life. And, that, and that's one of the – exactly. And that's one of the things that um, – that, that's changed a lot in our kind of understanding mm-hmm. of of uh, mental health is that 
you know, personality and, uh, you know, the limits of, of how far we accept uh, those as they exist and as people just are. The innate things that you yeah. have. Yeah. We have a much more wider range of acceptance. And one of the biggest things that we realize is it's it's really only a mental health problem if it is an actual problem for right. the person who's experiencing right. it. And Jiqui seems unhappy with his limited role, but he's perfectly functioning. He doesn't, yeah. he has friends, you know, the friends kind of make fun of him occasionally. But they care and stuff, about him. They, they care about him, him around. He and... likes being around them. Yeah. You know, like everybody's kind of happy. It's kind of, he's more of the Eeyore of a group. It's not sure. like Eeyore's always unhappy and he's always kind of morose and sad. He's got the rain cloud over his head. He's got the rain cloud over, over his head. But yeah. you know what? The friends always just include him, you know? It's that, it's that wholesome They accept that they... him for who he is. Exactly. And that's the, yeah, absolutely, that's a really good comparison. Yeah. Jay Quees and Eeyore. <laughs> we should have come up with that for as you Totally. They live in the woods, the 100-acre wood. <laughs> That's right. Right? Christopher Robin could be uh, what's-her-face. Yeah. Showing up to sure. brighten his day every now Absolutely. and then. Absolutely. And, and yeah, so it's like, it, I think for us, it's, it's it's um I think a part of that gets lost to, compared to the Elizabethan audience who would have right. said, oh, there's a yellow bile having yeah, like we have to fix too. It. Because Sanguine was the the, the goal, right? Yeah, Everybody yeah. had to be that fun, happy-go-lucky Prince Hal type, right? Yes. And that was the pinnacle of... Elizabethan society. If yes. everybody could just be more sanguine, everything would be great. Yeah. Um, so and you had to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Even we, if it wasn't a problem. And we don't have that. We yeah. don't have that baggage with us at this point. Well, so, hopefully not. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'd hope not. Um, so I think, yeah, it, reading his character now is, is a little... Uh, it's a little different, and I think it's it it does make it a little more difficult. I think we talked about this when we were reading it, when we talked about As You Like, it was like our understanding of these characters is is even more open to interpretation than I think Shakespeare might have intended. Right. You know, we, we kept harping on that as you like it, as mm-hmm. the audience wants to yes. interpret it yes. kind of vibe in that play. And I think Jake Weiss is a, is a good example of how that's even more so for us because we don't we don't carry the this extra baggage of, no. of him be requiring mental health. No, we're just we're just like it's it's an invitation. The play is an invitation for us to interpret these characters how yeah. we want them and or how we how we like them. Yeah. And uh, and. It doesn't really seem like this is a, a big problem for him, so we're much more likely to just include him as one of the characters that these these uh, forest dwellers tend to. Yeah. They they just they just like having him around. Yeah. Seems like everything's okay. Everything's hunky dory for him. Everything's alright with him. To be or not to be. That is the question. How about Hamlet? Well, Hamlet's Hamlet's a big one. Hamlet's so a big one. He's the biggest one. So yes. I'm glad we're going into it now because we can devote a big chunk of time to him. Uh, so Hamlet would have been diagnosed with uh, both mania and melancholy right. at different points. We, Probably. Yeah, 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 most likely. I mean, again, there's no. It's actually interesting that there's very few um, specific lines within Hamlet talking about his mental health despite it being right. a place so much focused on his mental health yeah it's almost like the interpretation of his words uh you have to read between the lines to understand yeah. what the what the implication of what he's saying actually I, is I mean we do have Polonius uh coming in and saying yes. your your son is mad yes. you know but he thinks it's madness from uh lovelornness right. you know it's it's you know he's been jilted by Ophelia uh therefore he's gone a little a little topsy-turvy because he's facing the this difficult challenge and therefore it's coming across as melancholy. Love mostly. sickness or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that that in itself is interesting that we have a character um, 
even though it's Polonius who's a bit of a ridiculous character, yeah. and even though he's wrong in his diagnosis, in his yeah. diagnosis, he has no idea that Hamlet is actually just grieving his father's death and his mother's um, fornication with his uncle. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that we have a character recognizing the descent of mm-hmm. a of a character from one one particular way. He was Hamlet was this way before, and now through these steps he has become this character. Yeah. And these are all the, the ways he's descended into this this pit of despair, yeah. um, which is kind of forward-thinking yeah. from, from a perspective of, of an Elizabethan. I think they would... I, I, I do question how they would have interpreted that because mm-hmm. it seems as though the rest of the characters we're going to be talking about had some kind of moment that tipped them over the edge right is that how elizabethans understood this stuff yeah was it was it that you had like it it couldn't have just been an innate imbalance of the humors there was that that idea that you could um, bring them back into balance well you could bring them back into balance or they could be manipulated even further out of balance by spirits or the devil right which is what hamlet's friends talk about when they think that his father is actually a a ghost sent from hell right and and sorry just to jump back a little bit we didn't talk about that but that was also a a a common belief of the time especially actually pre-elizabethan in the middle ages you know uh you know if someone was had what we would now call a schizophrenic episode or something like that they might be like oh they're talking to the devil right you know if they were epileptic it was a sign that they had been taken over by some by spirit spirit. so yeah there was a lot of religious uh, interpretation beyond Galen and the Four Humors. There was yeah. a lot of that as well. Yeah. Um, kind of that, superstition, which the Elizabethans were too, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so we get a little bit of that here in, in Hamlet. It's not so much in the other characters. I think that's why we didn't mention it so much. Yeah. Uh, because they really relied... Shakespeare seems to really rely on on uh, medical science yes. and to an extent that it existed. Yes, exactly. Yes. Medicine, at least, as it existed in the time. So yeah, um, so yeah here in Hamlet's case... Um, yeah, it's it, something has driven him, and it's the death of his father and yeah. the re- quick remarriage by Gertrude and everything. Um, this is what has altered him in some mm-hmm. form into sent those humors out of balance. Yeah, 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 and so we wind up with the Hamlet that we get on on page and in the play. And the the explanation for that could either be Polonius's um, kind of chronicling how his mood has changed as a result of the mm-hmm. changes he's gone through, or it could be answered by the the superstitious ghost slash devil slash evil spirit that yeah. has tempted him out of balance yeah. either one of those polonius is actually being much more um in line with how we might view um hamlet's disorder today the the ghost theory being uh something yeah. much more akin to a middle age or yeah. middle ages medieval uh, viewpoint um so yeah, he would have he would have had an excess of yellow and black bile out of out of whack with the phlegm and um, the blood of uh, yeah. that would have kept him in balance. And especially when you think of his wild swings from you know he has the the very morose kind of like oh to be or not to be, and then there's right. him yelling it at Ophelia, get thee to an honor. Right. You know, like it's it's not just hit, um, a single swing of humors. It's it's this wild imbalance that yeah. swings back and forth and everything that yeah. um, I think now we would generally call bipolar. But we'll get there in a second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so within the play, you get this this this, this kind of natural swing and ebb and flow uh, of Hamlet's character. And yes. I think within the play, it very much kind of revolves around his moral questioning his his suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. um his 
worries about death and how whether or not he's going to go to heaven, whether his father is going to make it to heaven. Right. What, what happens to uh, his uncle? You know, all these elements are influencing how he's thinking throughout the course of the play. Yeah. And, you know, you have everything from, you know, he just seems a little unhappy uh, when he first meets the ghost all the way to, alas, poor York, I knew him well. And then stabbing Laertes and being like, yeah, I'm up for a fight. Let's do this. Let's right. go. You know, he, he really is on this constant swing. But um, whereas the Elizabethans would have understood it as the humors are raging in and out of balance. Yeah. Uh, we kind of can follow it as more of like his his mental pathway through this journey towards ultimately getting the revenge that he seeks right is the play sympathetic towards hamlet as a as a character suffering through maybe not suffering through mental illness because that's not something they would have understood but is he treated with a kind of sympathy because of the symptoms that he's experiencing and the emotions that he's going through i think to an extent i think especially because he is the prince of denmark the main character he's the main the character you know they have like uh claudius sends uh rosencrantz and guildenstern to take care of him right. you know initially like before they decide to try and kill him yeah. you know it's very much him looking out for his his nephew yeah um probably keeping an eye on him as well yes but uh it seems like yes they're like oh well he's he's had a rough time of it you know his father did die mm-hmm. um claudius does have that speech that i mentioned uh in our hamlet episode about how uh you know like you've been you've been morose and and uh mourning for too long like it's time to shake (laughs) it off you know like there there does seem to be a little bit of a balance there between like care for him uh gertrude does the same kind of thing she's like yeah well you know you need to move on and everything uh there there does seem to be a bit of a balance there Mm -hmm. um i'd say most of the characters in the play do treat him with a, a fair bit of Maybe the respect that that would be owing anyway because of his status. Yeah. Um, if he were a, a commoner, I think people would probably yes. brush him off. But because he's a prince, they treat him differently. I think the other way that the play does treat him um, sympathetically is by giving him so much of the of the lines to speak. Yeah. We get so much of an insight into what he's feeling and thinking, both when he is um, out of whack. Uh, in a yellow bile sense and out of whack in a black bile sense he gets a lot of time to pontificate and talk through his issues i think this is why um uh sigmund freud you know pointed to this play as evidence possibly that talk therapy psychotherapy would be a success because it does seem like hamlet is trying to talk himself through his feelings and what he's what he's experiencing and and if the play had meant to condemn him, they probably Shakespeare probably wouldn't have tried to give him so much uh, room to explain himself. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it is it's it's of Shakespeare's plays. It's the first overtly psychological play where it's like, mm-hmm. let's think about what it is or let's explore what this is like for this one character. Let's right. give him like half the lines in the damn play. Well, yeah. it doesn't get that much, but yeah. he gets quite a bit. Yeah. He gets all the major soliloquies and everything. Um because we we're going to explore what it is to go through these experiences yeah. mentally, and yes. uh, you know I think that's incredibly nuanced compared to For oh sure. well he has too much yellow bile you know like yeah it's it not can, a simple one line we're going to brush this off yeah. like it could have been it's the Claudius, opposite of Jaques it, yes, really <laughs> exactly it really is like you could have had Claudius just saying oh well we are going to send him to John Hall down the street yeah. and uh, and have him apply his whatever um, to bring his humors back into and that but it wouldn't have been the play that it is and yeah. I think that represents a shift also in the way that. Um, 
Shakespeare makes a deliberate choice here to mm-hmm. to to illustrate the psyche, right? Exactly. And that is um, that seems to be a major break. There's no attempt to feed Hamlet a certain diet of yeah. this or pills or rose water syrup or whatever in order to bring him back into balance. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, a mind body separation, right? We're gonna we're gonna look at the mind. The body doesn't really matter, right? It's the mind that we're interested in. Yeah. That was Shakespeare being, I think, very forward thinking and very um, psychological mm-hmm. about the play, yeah. and that's why it's such an interesting psychological study. And, and I think the other interesting thing to bring up is is the fact that there's this kind of like understanding of like a breaking point, like yeah. the, the part where he's murdered Polonius. And then he sees the ghost and Gertrude probably doesn't, according to most productions. You know, it's like, does he go mad? Like this does. And that's a question the play is very concerned with is like, um, how mad is Shakespeare? How how mad mad is is Hamlet? Hamlet? Yeah. 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 It's, it's really like, is he faking it? Like that the play raises those questions, never answers them. And it's, it's incredibly, uh, thought-provoking to this day that we that we kind of yeah. still have this understanding of like this kid's been through a lot and then he just murders someone and then he has this ghost shop that's just in his head and yeah. it's like um you know what what is what does that mean what right. what does that say about uh human capacity for suffering and and dealing with things mentally just uh, these, generally these challenges yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly so how would we understand Hamlet today? I think you alluded to it already that uh, he would likely have some kind of bipolar disorder, um, whether bipolar one or bipolar two. Um, and uh, and the treatments for those today would have involved psychiatric yeah. medication and and uh, possibly talk therapy. I don't I don't know how it, it might work for some of the, the milder cases of bipolar. I think that therapy can be helpful, but um, it seems like, uh, in my opinion, Hamlet is halfway there. If he yeah. just had had just, you know, a little more time to talk through his shit. Well, and if he know? didn't have to, like, kill people. As well, yeah, and, it, and, and then have this, this you know, monkey on his back of, yeah. of revenge, 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 yeah, right? I yeah. think uh, he might have been okay, but but lithium might have helped as well. Um, <laughs> I'm sure not that was to it. make I'm sure fun of... In, no, and I'm sure that was in John Hall's poultice at one point. Well, little, yeah. You know, <laughs> it, it, all those chemicals combined into a lithium or something well, like that. Well, yeah, and, yeah. You know, so and like, <laughs> and and like realistically, like, um, I I think the the play again treats it as as a combination of a moral and psychological right uh, questioning that's going yeah. on there. Um, I think uh, today's I think even like the uh, two thousand Hamlet that we watch, right. uh, it it kind of loses some of that. Uh, moral questioning because we kind of understand a Hamlet when you see someone in the modern era suffering through these things and these these terrible experiences um, ghost or no ghost it's very easy to be like oh well they need they need just they just need some mental help you know they right. literally just need some psychological right. supports mm-hmm. and they could get through this and I, that's not the kind of structure that would have existed in the play back then so no. uh it it does definitely inf- change how we view his character in, in the modern the modern sense definitely uh let's pivot to ophelia our mm-hmm. second character from hamlet um Similar kind of issue, but very different approach, very different treatment, I think. Um, I think the Elizabethans would have probably viewed Ophelia as being um, melancholic to an extent. Yeah. Delirious towards the end. At the end, yeah. um, As she descended into madness. Um, 
likely would have had an excess of yellow bile, which is very interesting considering the way she dies, um, yeah. because yellow bile is the the watery. No, it was phlegm. Wasn't phlegm it? was the watery. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Never mind. So maybe she was trying to fix herself. Maybe she was trying to That's fix terrible. herself. I don't know. <laughs> um, but either way, I think it's it's uh, it's interesting that. Um, that delirium, I think, is is where I'm falling most yeah. heavily yeah. Uh, in terms of what uh, what would have been most out of whack, and uh, and that's where this gendered view of of treatment for mental disorders and mental illness well, and diagnosis, and diagnosis yeah, yeah. of mental illness um, really comes into play because, like I said, the delirium case study that John Hall talks about is a 24 year old woman. Um, it's the only mention of delirium in his book mm-hmm. and it happens to be a woman. So I, I have to wonder if maybe delirium was something that was, and again, this is a very small sample size, but when, when you talk about somebody being delirious, it seems like it's, it's, they've lost a, a grasp on reality yeah. and it, it belies some kind of uh, failing character failing. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think knowing what I know about the way people viewed women at the time exactly probably would have been more common yeah. commonly associated with women even though her symptoms are very similar to hamlet's yes. they've both gone through the same thing the death of, of a father um the murder of a father yeah. right and they're both dealing with suicidal ideation but hamlet very clearly has the space to talk through his problems and we well, very clearly say agency it's melancholy. To do so. And the agency yes. to do so, exactly. Yeah. Whereas Ophelia, not having that agency, not given the space to talk through her things, the things she's going through, mm-hmm. um, loses grasp on reality yeah. and ends up talking about flowers and dies in uh, by drowning. Yeah. So it's... Um, it is something that I, I wouldn't want to discount, um, even though I don't have a lot of evidence to support it. It does seem to me that if I were in university right now and writing a paper for a Shakespeare class, I might want to do a lot of research on the uh, Ophelia's treatment and delirium in um, Renaissance or Middle Ages medicine, just because it, it does seem like there's something there. Yeah. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Now, how does the play treat Ophelia? Is she treated sympathetically, or are we meant to view her with scorn? Or I, I'd say it does treat her fairly well, but it is bound by that the sexist right. uh, understanding of of the roles that comes to define her character. You know, it, it is all about her love for Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Definitely fails a Bechdel test, uh, <laughs> and it's. Uh, you know, she her her one of her defining moments is when she's told, "Well, you can't marry him." Right. You know, she has no agency whatsoever in no. any of her of her actions, and the play is very kind of forth. I don't think it's it's it doesn't question that patriarchal authority no. at all. Um, it just takes it for granted. Um, but at the same time, it does paint a portrait of this young woman who is affected by all these forces. Yeah. I think, I think it is sympathetic to her in the sense that there's no other way she could have gone because yeah. her life, she has no control over no. her life. No, um, she's not going to get to stand at the front of the stage and deliver a, a great no. big long soliloquy about how she's feeling. Yeah. That's just not done. Yeah. Unless you're Juliet, but 
Yeah. But then it's just because you're in love and, and that's exactly. nice and happy. Exactly. Everybody's okay yeah. with that. Yeah. You don't, you can't allow a woman to discuss her, her mental state no. the way you could Hamlet. You just look at her and you say, well, she's delirious. Yes. Well, she's, you know, off a rocker, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it is kind of sad because uh, I think there's there's been a lot of effort to kind of rehabilitate her her character. I know one of the articles, we'll link to it, um, it was kind of more of a personal essay about yeah. mental health and, and Shakespeare. And there was a play, Ophelia uh, Reenters or something like that. I can't remember the name oh, of it. Oh, hold on. Let me find it. Uh, it was a four-actress representation of the character of Ophelia in Kimberly Gilbert's Enter Ophelia Distracted by the Tafferty Punk Theater Company in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, which sounds amazing. Yeah, it it's sounds like, really uh, cool. It's like four different actresses actresses playing the same, uh, the same character. I if it's the four humors. Mm, I, it would be very interesting <laughs> to pull this out and look at it. The other play or the other uh, vision of this that uh, recently came out, there was a, a film, film version of yeah, 2018, uh, I think. Hamlet's story, but from Ophelia's point, point of, view, of view. Played by uh, Daisy Ridley. Yeah, actually, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is, again, a, a, a kind of a case of, of her character being rehabilitated mm-hmm. and, and being given the agency in the modern era that she's been denied in the early modern era. Yeah. Well, maybe. We haven't seen either of those things, but but it is an exploration more of (laughs) of her psychological state as opposed to just Hamlet's. And I think that's what the play really fails to do is to give her that... that, that agency within the context of the play. Like, she doesn't have those soliloquies. She doesn't no. have anything. She has literally just... I mean, we commented on it, again, from the 2000 version, where she uh, has, like, six lines, and yeah. it's it's literally just, like... She's a pawn. She's a pawn to be she's, played with, yeah. And, and Polonius tells her what to do. Claudius tells her what to do. Hamlet tells her what to do. She does it, and it, it ends up driving her mad, and yeah. she drowns, yeah. um, whether by her own hand or accidentally. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a much more tragic story. I don't know that I agree that she's treated sympathetically, um, yeah. but I do think that within the play, as I mentioned in our Hamlet episode, at least Gertrude sees the humanity in her, yeah. and that's something that um, I've read that that some people think that Gertrude's reaction to her is is like a horrified reaction to the way that Ophelia yeah. behaves, but um, I've always viewed Gertrude's motherly attitude towards Ophelia as being a sign that at least someone in the play is recognizing that Ophelia is hurting and desperate and wishes she could help. But again, Gertrude is is hemmed in by her own, um, her marriage and the position she's in yeah. as queen. Yeah. And she can't really, she doesn't have much agency either. No. So it's, it's a sad story all around. True. Now I think diagnosing, quote unquote, we're not, not really. We're not going to be diagnosing, <laughs> but uh, talking about Ophelia's uh, situation, especially at the end, I'd say she, I mean, I don't know how you'd classify that, honestly. You haven't yeah. gone through the DSM-5 in a, in a couple years. Ever? Ever. Have you uh, ever read the DSM? No, not front <laughs> to back. I'll tell you that for sure. I think I remember looking up something for a paper once. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But the whole um, thing. But yeah, not the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's likely that she had some sort of either, I mean, she was... Yeah, is it a schizophrenic uh, break? Because she was talking to people that weren't there. She was talking to the plants, you know. Like, there's that. Um, It could just be an extremely deep case of depression at the end of it. It's really hard to tell. I I think more than anything, there's there's an aspect to grief that's not being addressed. Yes, Um, yeah. That were at least we haven't addressed yet. That yeah. that it's just um, a deep grief over 
anything, any pick, yeah, pick, pick, it a, for her. pick a subject yeah, for yeah, her, yeah. Uh, her lack of agency, the loss of love in her life, the death of her father, um, the abandonment by her brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things are, are enough on their own to potentially send someone who is already maybe dealing with uh, an unstable mental landscape yeah. to uh, send them to the bottom of the pit. Right. So, um, and, and a, a psychologist today would probably um, would probably engage in, in in several sessions of talk therapy, some cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, probably a lot of pro- medicine, <laughs> like a lot. Yeah, of, you could imagine there'd yeah. be there'd be some antidepressants and antipsychotics administered at some point. Maybe some EMDR treatment to yeah. deal with uh, with the trauma of her father being killed yeah. um, by her. Lo- by her lover, yeah. lover. Um, there's a, there's definitely a lot of trauma that's being experienced there yeah. so uh, a modern um, diagnosis if it were to be made uh, would probably fall somewhere along those lines I yeah. think um, yeah she's a sad it's a sad case no matter when you're viewing case. Ophelia I think um, again maybe not if you're an Elizabethan because she's just a woman but <laughs> It's Damn, terrible. Elizabeth, Elizabeth uh, well, you know, living under a great queen, queen yes. and they're so misogynistic. It's so sad. Speaking of great women, yeah. let's talk about Lady Macbeth, who oh, I think yeah. is maybe one of my favorite characters in all of in all of Shakespeare. Um, was she on your list when we did our favorite female characters? I don't remember. Characters? Was she? I, I, I think hope she was. she was. I think she was. Um, because I do really like her a lot. Um, so, what would li- what would Lady Macbeth be diagnosed with in in the Elizabethan times? Um, well, again, it would have. It would have been eventually delirium at the end. Yeah. Again, she's she's um, seeing things. She's not connected to reality. Right. Again, it's a very similar kind of approach to Ophelia. I think the the diagnosis for the Elizabethans wouldn't have been that different. Again, no, you're a woman. It's delirium. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's yellow bile. And then, you know, who knows what happens after that. Right. Um, but I think within the context of the play, it's a very different story. Because, Absolutely. I mean, Lady Macbeth is... Especially in the uh, which version that we just watched, the, the one, 2015 one with uh, right with what's his name, the guy Michael Fassbender. Michael Lindsay. Fassbender. Thank you. <laughs> you did. Uh, you mouthed it to me. I appreciate that very much. Uh, Michael Fassbender version. Yes. Where uh, what's her name? Now we have to remember Marianne her name. Cotillard. Yeah, she she played Lady Macbeth, and she did like an amazingly yes. deep, complex psychological creature. Yeah. Um, that you know was dealing with the death of a child, um, and was just in this heavy state of mourning, and had given up all womanly anything. Yeah, and she was to support her husband, support her husband, and his in, well in her search for sure. power, perhaps yeah. right. Yeah, um, but she is a very different character than Ophelia. She has a ton of agency. She pushes her she, husband. I would argue. I mean, I don't want to give away too much because we are going to be talking about Macbeth yeah. in the in the next couple of weeks. I think it's a ways away still. In the next couple of months. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's um, she's almost the driving force for the entire play, yeah. really. Yeah. You could look at it that way. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, to say, oh, she's just a woman, it's delirium. Even though the play almost seems to suggest it that. It seems to fall back on that at the end. A little bit. A little bit. Yes. But, but the thing is, even Macbeth goes through delirium too in the, in the banquet sure. scene, right? Yeah. Like he's seeing things that aren't there. He's yeah. seeing ghosts and what have you. Yeah. Um, so when Lady Macbeth experiences it, it's it's on a much more even basis than yes. with Ophelia and Hamlet where Ophelia goes way further down the melancholic 
uh, roots than Before Hamlet does. Before she gets her delirium. Well, well, she hits del- exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of a further spectrum. Whereas Hamlet manages to pull it back. Yeah. from his delirium. With Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, there, there is no melancholy. Yeah, it well, doesn't. It doesn't seem like it. Not to the extent that Hamlet and Ophelia experienced yes, it. It's yes. it's more like um, they keep piling on bad decisions on bad yeah. decisions to try and claw their way back like they're digging a hole when they should be trying to climb out of yeah. it and and that i think is what precipitates ultimately uh her break with reality and the out damn spot scene which which might also suggest some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder yeah um which probably not in the strictest sense uh, of of the disorder as we understand it today, um, and I don't know if there's a, a, a temporary OCD that would come about as a result yeah. of um, uh, a traumatic mental break, um, but delirium I think does fit that bill at that point in in the story. Yeah, and I think I think for the how the play treats her as well, yeah. uh, it's it's very much. Um, Again, it's it's a progression. It's yeah. it's something that we kind of see coming. Uh, she's an ambitious woman yes. who's not ready for the, any of the the responsibility. The resp- well, and the consequences of yeah. her ambition. You know, it's it's very much uh, her and her husband both uh, are 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 ambitious to the point that they that they want the thing, but they're not ready to deal with the thing once they get it. They're not really ready to be king queen. I'm going to argue extent. a little bit that she, if Macbeth had been stronger, Mac- Lady Macbeth might mm. have been able to hold things together. Um, yeah, I mean, and, that's, and they the might play have definitely succeeded. debates that. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that, and that might be a, a, a more of a feminist reading, weirdly, yeah, uh, to suggest that, uh, that Lady Macbeth is the stronger of the two. Um, but it does seem to suggest that uh, she's the one who who stops up her her baby maker, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in order to to make herself a man so that she can be equal to her husband, and she achieves that. Um, but she's the one who has to like smack him around and talk sense into him, yeah. like steal yourself, yeah. uh, screw your metal to this to the sticking place, or stick your. I remember that line. <laughs> What is the line? I don't remember. Hold on. <laughs> screw, screw your courage to the sticking place. Ah, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. See, I almost got it. You I just said metal yeah. instead yeah. of courage. But yeah. um, don't you remember in the film when they were actually screwing when that happened? Yeah, I was really more focused on the screwing at that point. Oh my Sorry. god! I was just like, "Whoa, this this is a this is a weird scene." That's all I remember thinking. But about it's it's point. perfect because it really does showcase how equal they are and how mm-hmm. and how um, she's bringing him up to her level so that they can complete this task yeah. together. Yeah. Um, without her, he wouldn't have been able to do the thing that um, was required of him. Yeah. In the context of the play, to keep the plot going. Yeah. Um, but it does have those consequences, and I think that that is um, less a failing on her part than it is a failing on, uh, or, or it's not even a failing really. It's just that's what the play required. Mm-hmm. This was never going to end well for the Macbeths. They were always going to end up on the losing end of whatever this uh, battle or conflict was. So um, her downfall. 
Um, certainly is precipitated by the death of King Duncan. She has to wash the blood from her hands, which is still a metaphor that people use to this day. Yeah. If you have blood on your hands, it's it's a symbolic representation of your guilt and your yeah. participation in, in a bloody conflict. Um, or even not a bloody conflict, right? It could just be that you caused somebody else harm. Yeah. Um, and that's what she's dealing with is this extreme guilt over what she did. So I think um, if there is any kind of failing on her part, it's that she didn't screw her courage to the sticking place at the end. Yeah, yeah. And she kind of lost faith in the process. And then she ended up, um, is it that she committed suicide? Did she did she die that way or did she just die? I think they said she just died. I can't remember. I think it's implied that she that she yeah, commits suicide. Yeah. But um, again, a kind of Ophelia-esque off, offstage incident Death by has suicide. occurred yes. yes um and yeah and i think it's 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 interesting that that is the kind of ultimate <laughs> uh arrival point for both women is that it is death uh you know it seems like yeah. for the women in these plays uh it's delirium is a, a crossing point that they can't come back from right whereas hamlet and macbeth both do they uh, still macbeth, die they, but they, it's they do so, glorious battle exactly they, they manage to recover enough to gather their senses and lead the lead the fight or conduct the duel that uh, ultimately leads to their death yeah really it really does seem like like uh i was just looking at the list of plays that we've gone through you know titus andronicus's daughter um killed died yeah uh well yes murdered yeah. by her father yeah. uh juliet suicide yeah uh leontes's wife i can't remember her name yeah in winter's, in tale. winter's yeah. tale yeah um also uh he thinks she's murdered um cymbeline yeah dead but yeah. she comes back to life and so does leontes wife yeah um so it does seem like yeah, like face adversity generally well yeah <laughs> yeah and and in all of those uh, cases it's precipitated by a traumatic event that causes them to sink into uh, a deep depression i can't recall cymbeline 100 but she is banished yeah. from her kingdom so you can imagine that there must be some kind of grief going on with that yeah. same with um uh, uh cordelia Right. Yeah. Cordelia's yeah. death in in Lear um, also seems to follow a similar yeah. path, although yeah. they don't. These characters don't fall into a, a delirium necessarily. Yeah, it's not. It does ex- seem like it's, yeah. The play doesn't explore it so much as just. If there had been just one it. more act, they would have crossed that threshold. I don't think Lear needs a Lear sixth does not. Act. No. Okay, <laughs> let's just be clear about that. Um, but yeah, it does. It does seem Lady Macbeth for being such a, in my opinion, feminist icon. Um, Still, the, the, the play falls back on some misogynistic and, and sexist tropes when it comes to the treatment of her mental illness. So do I think it's it's a sympathetic portrayal? Um, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah that's I, fair. I'd I say within the, within the compared to other Elizabethan materials, yeah. perhaps it would have been. But in other ways, she is given much more than exactly, other yeah, women are given. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's maybe it balances out in the end. Maybe. How would we treat Lady Macbeth today? Um, well, first of all, before we throw her into jail yeah, for murder. Yeah, for murder. I think that's how it um, I mean, Unfortunately, we that hope. happens a lot with it people does. with mental health illness, yes. but yes. Yes, but, but she did she did commit a murder, and, and, so, and that was the inciting incident that led to the unraveling. Although you could trace it back to the death of her, her child. So mm-hmm. there might be some postpartum depression that you could yeah. talk about as a, a potential diagnosis that, that starts everything off, um, that leads to her making poor decisions when it comes to King Duncan and the ambition of her husband. Yeah. Um, so 
this is why it's you know here's my my uh, uh, women's health rant yeah. for the the day uh, the defunding of Planned Parenthood and other uh, organizations that deal with women's health um, do address those issues when a when a woman loses a child. Um, either uh, through or even has a child or even has, has a child and has postpartum depression yeah. absolutely but if it's a miscarriage or if it's a, an elective abortion um, there are mental health supports in place to help mm-hmm. women deal with that and so when we defund those organizations um, it can lead to not that it it's going to happen, but it seems like Lady Macbeth's story is a bit of a cautionary tale for how wow. how things... <laughs> that, now, that's feminist reading. I like that. That's good. <laughs> well, it does feel like that, that, that if, if she had been able to explore with the same depth that Hamlet had her own psyche, she would have come out of the death of her child um, in a much better, a much stronger place than she eventually is put in in this play Mm -hmm. and um and i think you can trace that back to the death of her child um the the mental break that happens in act four i believe it is of Macbeth when she um the out damn spot scene um is a direct result of the murder of duncan but that could have been precipitated by this this melancholic you know depression postpartum depression and her own husband's breakdown as well right like like she's kind of supporting him throughout that as well and then um it's only when all the political situation really starts to fall apart that she's falls under this weight and falls into the delirium would Um, you say it's kind of like um oh what do they call it like uh where you're a caregiver and you experience fatigue mm, right it it, could there be something like that where lady Macbeth is bearing the the full weight of both her own ambition and her husband's ambition and the guilt of all of the stuff because Macbeth seems very unbothered by a lot of the things that he does well and his his own mental health issues kind of cloud all that because he doesn't yeah again his he his doesn't manifest as worry so much as a bit of a mania you know he in the the uh, banquet scene especially it's very right. much like he's yelling at banquo it's not like yeah. i mean he's scared of him too but it's it's like he's not he's not uh, depressed about mm-hmm. the appearance of this ghost he's he's manic at the sight of it right um especially in the the fassbender one he kind of has this well and there, and there like, are other scenes in that film where he's murdering the yeah the mother and children yeah. you know which is not in the play but yeah. it adds to that sense of of mania almost yeah. that he's um, adding tremendous uh, injury and insults <laughs> to injury um, in in piling on his, the sins on yeah, his head, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, I think are a, a sign of a different kind of mental struggle that he's undergoing. Yeah. Um, we don't have enough time to talk about Macbeth's mental health. I don't think it's as interesting as Lady Macbeth's, yeah, but yeah, how, how do you view her her mental health uh, or mental illness in uh, modern terms? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you. I think, I think uh, again, the, the fact that she's seeing things and stuff, there is mm. probably, there is potentially a... Um, a further psychosis that's that's kind of uh, manifesting itself because of the untreated nature of all of her other right issues that she's facing. And um, again, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. I don't think we either of us are that um, that these things can be like temporarily um, inflicted on a person yeah. as a result. Like, is there like yeah, a cascade yeah. effect of you know where you have mental illness on top of mental illness and it leads to like I. I don't know enough yeah. about the the brain to really no idea. I mean, I know I know I've 
there was a really good book I read a couple when I was in actually in high school, I think, and it might have just been like a short might not have even book, been a book. It might have actually just been like an article that they had okay. us read in grade 12 or something like that, um, talking about mental illness. And it was, uh, I remember one case study, it was a person in their 20s who mm-hmm. just all of a sudden developed schizophrenia out right. of nowhere. And it right. was, it, it was, there was no preceding thing. And I remember the article saying like, that is the case in a lot of instances. It's really? just, yeah, like your, your brain chemistry just goes out of whack and and all of a sudden you have this illness well and and i mean i i know that um bipolar disorder comes across in in later life sometimes spontaneously Mm -hmm. um even in cases where there's no uh family history of it um well we didn't even talk about uh like alzheimer's or something like that i mean there's a way to read king lear is actually you know dementia focused it's not so much on his anything related to uh the breakup of his kingdom and his problems with his daughters it's, it's actually just, just aging, aging. Yeah. And, i mean that's his concern from the very start of the uh the play and then it just manifests itself throughout right so mm-hmm. that that's a whole other case that we could have could have explored but um i think it'll come up when we talk yes, about I, yes we, we have a lot to talk about with Lear for sure if i longer stay we shall begin our ancient bickering so the ancient bickerings we've decided on today is um which of these characters has the best chance of recovery um, in a modern setting? If we were able to reach back through the pages of the collected works and pull these characters out into a modern setting, which characters would have the best chance of uh, making a full recovery with proper psychological or psychiatric treatment? Yeah. Um, I know my answer is definitely not Jayquees because I think well, as we I, talked I, yeah, about it, I was going to um, say we really just excluded Jayquees from this conversation. Yeah, because I, I don't. I agree with you, Eden. I don't think he has a, a definable mental illness that needs to be treated. I think he's perfectly fine. If it ever became an issue, I think it could be treated. Yes. Um, but as it stands right now, he doesn't seem to need the treatment as much as the other three yes. characters definitely do. Yes. Yes. Um, can I go first? Absolutely. If yours, if you agree with me, Lindsay, yeah. I will happily take this one uh, as a win, as a as a loss. Oh, you can take the W because oh, okay, uh, because it's your sex. Uh, I would say it's Ophelia. Oh, okay. Uh, because I think any other si- today's modern situation, a young woman transplanted from the <laughs> 1600s to uh, modern days. She would have just so many more options. <laughs> I think that alone would fix most of her problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think uh, there's any need for her to go down the depression spiral that she does um, if she was in a modern setting. So I think that one just figure, fixes itself. I think, uh, plus, again, like talk therapy, like telling her that she does have agency, that she does have self worth, that, you know, she does not have to listen to her toxic parents <laughs> and stuff, you know, like uh, she doesn't have to marry Hamlet if she doesn't want to, or she can pursue him. And, you know, th- there's, there's just so much room and po- room for positivity in Ophelia's life that I feel like she would have easily the best chance of coming out on top. Well, this might be a first folks. I think before I even get a chance to say my argument, Aiden has changed my mind. I was going to say Lady Macbeth. For the reasons that I elucidated already about uh, postpartum depression and the the increase in in women's health and the role that that can play, the role that that plays in in mothers and women uh, having just given birth. it's fair. But Ophelia, you make a very, very <laughs> good argument. 
and I hate it. <laughs> this is so not about bickering anymore. I'm just agreeing mm. with you. I hate this. The, we need to rename this segment today. Agreement Peaks. <laughs> Agreement Peaks. Ancient Agreements? Ancient Agreements. <laughs> is I this like a it. treaty? <laughs> I like it. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah no, I, I think, mean, I think you take your, you take the W this time, my right, dear, because right, I will. yeah, thank you. I would, and, and that makes me sad that we can't, um, rehabilitate, uh, poor Ophelia because she really does have quite a, a sad lot in life and it is largely owing to her sex and the time in which she, she lived. Yeah. Um, but we are lucky enough to live in a world where uh, mental health, as I said in our introduction, is gaining widespread acceptance. Uh, mental health treatments and and mental illness as a um, a just cause another, of death, well, uh, another form uh, of illness, another I think form we're, of we're illness. Just coming to realize exactly. that you know it, the brain's just another part of you, and it can be affected by all sorts of things. But it can be fixed too, and, and we can, can we get can help. work yeah. on it. You can get yeah. help, and you can live a normal life or a near normal life with most of the the psychiatric disorders that litter the dsm-5 and even some that aren't in the dsm-5 um, there are tremendous strides being made every day in in mental health and um and you know as as interesting and fun as it is to kind of look back through the pages of shakespeare's works to identify and uh maybe half diagnose and play around with the stuff this is the lived experience of a lot of people mm-hmm. and uh um I think if you walk away from this episode with uh, with one message from us, it would be to um, open your mind, open your heart, and and raise awareness about the the mental health issues um, that that people suffer from, that people live with, that people are struggling with, and that people survive and and live every day with. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're very fortunate to live in the time that we are, but there's a long way to go before we get to a place where. Um, these kinds of things are treated without the stigma and um, and harm that can come from um, mistreatment and misunderstanding. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. So, Lindsay, what's next? Next on our docket is Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. Which, which I'm sad we didn't time up for Christmas I know, quite as well. If that I could know. have been this episode it's, instead. It's, yes, it was a, a couple of weeks or a couple of days ago the Feast of Epiphany happened. Yeah. So, um, but we, you know what? We're getting to it. It's fine. It's happening in the month of January. It's winter time. We're, we're near enough to it. Twelfth Night is a really fun play. And I think it's, uh, we actually saw it at the uh, at the Globe yes. in London. It was yes. the one play we were able to see in, in 2017 when we visited. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it is uh, the fictional Shakespeare. Ooh. Yes. Oh, this will be fun. That's so we're going to watch our, some yes. uh, uh, film versions of Shakespeare as a fictional character. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a book with Shakespeare as a fictional character. You know, I know what? There, I'm sure there must have been, but I'm wondering if we should maybe read one of those. I, I seem to think, now I haven't read any of Jasper Ford's Tuesday yeah. Next books yeah. in a very long time, but I wonder if Shakespeare makes an appearance. Yeah. Or where else Shakespeare might make an appearance in books. Listeners, loyal listeners of the Bix Pod, yeah. if you know of any books that feature a fictional Shakespeare, please leave us a comment. Let us know. Um, we would love to read those uh yeah. One or two of those. Yeah, we'd uh, like to take a look at that books. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so until then, 
thanks for joining us here today. And uh, yeah, well, every time you say until then, I want to do keep fit and have fun because we've had this joke already on the podcast. I know we've, we've done. I once. think we did the music on the outro. I, I, I have it saved in a file. Okay, well, we'll do it again. I guess so. Except you are not Hal Johnson, and I am not Joanne McLeod, and that is a joke for you, Canada. <laughs> You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.